This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Equity Mike. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. If you are joining us for the very first time, welcome and thank you for becoming an Equity Mate. If you're still getting up to speed with the basics, you can check out our Get Started Investing podcast. But let's crack on for today. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm excited for this interview. We have a returning guest, a returning favorite, uh, Nathan Bell from Invest Smart, and we're going to be diving into two companies. Uh, last time, I believe we only spoke about Australian companies. This time we're going global. Yes. So Nathan Bell of Intelligent Investor. Nathan, welcome. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad you said Warren Buffett's status and not age. <laughs> <laughs> we are actually going to go and see him over in Berkshire, uh, over we'll in, Berkshire, in, Berkshire. in <laughs> Omaha for the Berkshire <laughs> Conference this year. Uh, given both of their ages, we felt time might be running out. So have you ever been, Nathan? Uh, I have been a couple of times. Um, what we used to do in my old company was whoever was uh, basically the last analyst in, who was typically the youngest analyst, had to get up at four in the morning and go and line up and save seats for everyone else. <laughs> it, it is the single worst job you'll get as an investor in your life. Like, trying to hold seven seats in an auditorium that's going to fill up twice over for like three or four hours while everyone's trying to pitch those seats is a nightmare. Gee, see, I had, we haven't even thought about yeah. that. We just thought you get a ticket on your – a seat on your ticket and you roll in. But if – we're going to have to be sending our juniors to – Nice. Let's get into uh, the interview today. And uh, we're excited to have you on because Intelligent Investor are launching a new fund, the – Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund, ASX ticker IISV, which is an actively managed ETF of about 20 or so global industry champions and market leaders. And so today we're here to talk about two of those 
global industry champions and market leaders. Yeah, so let's kick off. Um, we've got a couple of companies to dive into and then pending time, you did uh, you did mention that you've got so many stocks in your head that it. Uh, I think you, you, need, I th- you need to get them out. <laughs> I think you promised uh, one international bank that makes the Australian banks look very expensive. So even if we don't have time to delve into it, we'll get you to give us the name at the end of the interview. <laughs> So the companies, uh, the the fund is made up of about seventy percent international stocks, and we'll touch on uh, the purpose of the fund in a moment. But let's start with the first one, Nathan, which is Mastercard. Now, if you have been living under a rock, let's just start with what is Mastercard and a bit of a history, and then we'll get into the the, the bull case and a bit of the nuts and bolts. Yeah, so Mastercard shares a duopoly, basically on the financial transaction rails of the financial system with Visa. And the history goes back to actually the late 1950s. So these companies have been around for a while. And it started with the launch of the Bank AmeriCard, which was uh, it would eventually become Visa. And a bunch of financial institutions got together and said, well, we're going to launch our own card. And that's eventually what became MasterCard. Now, unbelievably, MasterCard listed in 2006. And I clearly wasn't paying attention because the stock is up about 100 times since it listed, which is just phenomenal. And this is what I really want to, this is why I picked MasterCard. Um, I mean, I could have picked, there's a whole bunch of incredible companies you just can't find on the ASX that we could talk about. But I, I just thought this one in particular, it's, it's easy to understand because people are probably customers of it. You know, basically everybody has a Visa or MasterCard. And the business is actually quite simple, but it's also your classic Warren Buffett stock. And again, it, it shows that when you buy that quality that's just got these impregnable competitive advantages that competitors just can't compete with, you know, and you happen to be in the right spot at the right time, you know, with this switch to digital payments, um, you know, the returns can be absolutely phenomenal for, for low risk. And that's what I really trying to tell people what this fund is about, because I think so many Australians have thought about investing overseas or can see the writing on the wall for stocks like um you know, Woolworths or their banks whose share prices haven't gone anywhere for over a decade now. You know, you can see that there's no growth left in those businesses and go, okay, well, there must be these, you know, I know these great businesses exist overseas, but I'm, it's too time consuming. I'm, I'm too afraid to go over there. It's too much work or, you know, it's too complex or I see all these strange Asian companies and CEOs going missing and all this sort of stuff. And so that's what this um, genesis for the fund was. And so MasterCard is, is typical of that. It's just a very simple business that we understand where they take a small charge on our everyday purchases and those pennies essentially add up to, at the moment, about 10 or $11 billion in net profit. This is an absolute financial beast, this company. So um, the previous CEO who was there from about 2010 to 2021 a guy called AJ Banger and um, he was quite a um, lively personality so he was quite well known um, and he was there till 2021 and I, so I think you know, in that decade revenue increased fivefold and net profit increased fourfold so this is so this is a 380 billion dollar US dollar business so nearly half a trillion or over half a trillion Australian dollars so it's a really big company and yet the net profit is still growing in the mid-teens so, you know, you just don't find that in Australia. You just don't f- find these type of businesses, particularly growing that fast. But the, the net profit is a ridiculous 45% of revenue. So, like, almost half of revenue falls to the, the bottom, bottom, proper bottom line. And if you look at in Australia, for example, where CSL or 
REA group would probably be hung out there as two of, by far and away, two of our best businesses and extraordinary margins, particularly in those property classifieds businesses. Now, even their margins are 20 or 25% and they're the absolute pinnacle of what you can find in Australia. So this is an absolute monster that's still growing quickly at, at $350 billion market value. So Nathan, let's just put, stop there because I think a lot of people uh, across what MasterCard is, they've seen it on their credit cards or their debit cards. Uh, and most people are familiar with the duopoly that exists in payment rails between Visa and MasterCard. And both have been incredible investments and incredible businesses. And, you know, as more and more of the world gives up cash and moves to digital payments. It feels like they've got long growth runways ahead. And you've just told us that they have 45, well, MasterCard has a 45% profit margin. It did $9.9 billion in profit off $22 billion in revenue, which is astounding. Best, Some of the best profit margins in the world. The obvious question out of all of that becomes, why aren't there other companies entering this space, trying to bust up the duopoly and accepting a 30% profit margin or a 20% profit margin and trying to undercut these two giants? So the two big risks uh, so is the competition. So we can talk about that in a second. And the other one is regulation. So if the government came in and put a cap on the prices or the fees that MasterCard and Visa could charge, you know, that's the other big risk. And they've actually tried in the US to make that happen. And, and it's happened for some particular client groups and MasterCard and Visa have just offset that with putting up their fees elsewhere. So, um, but that is the big risk to me. The reason their competition hasn't been able to take them on because, you know, uh, American Express is essentially the other, the third player. Uh, they essentially have their own network and, and it's a different business as well because they've actually got a bank within Amex. So it like they take the credit risk. So all Visa and MasterCard do is, all they do is just, charge the transaction, that's it. Uh, whereas Amex actually lends money. So that creates a very different business. You know, very capital intensive when you have to start lending huge amounts of money. Um, and that's why you don't get as big a profit margins. And then you also have to worry about a recession if all of a sudden people can't pay back their debts. So that's really been the third main competitor. And if you have a look at, uh, you know, Afterpay, uh, all these sort of BNPL companies, I'm sure everyone's familiar with, they've been uh, very popular with young people who have been steering away from credit cards because mainly because I think there's a um, I, I think there's just a bad feeling about them generally that they're taking on debt and they probably see a lot of adults who have got too many cards or have borrowed too much money and being NPL just seemed to be a much more modern approach smaller amounts but I, I think what you're going to see uh, on, the, on this particular competitor over time and and, and I may be wrong but uh, one, the BNPL sector is not even profitable anyway, so I don't, I don't even know whether it's going to really last as a service. But the one thing it does do well is it actually provides the retailers with good information about what's selling and 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 it shows that the average person who has a BNPL spends more money with that buy now, pay later account than if they didn't have it. So, that, so that's a positive. But again, you, you've got some credit risk if people aren't paying back their and the money they because they are actually borrowing money technically even though the BNPL sector says otherwise but actually what happens as you get older there's a there's a massive network where an absolute global network of merchants signed up to Visa and MasterCard and that takes a lot of time to put together so you yes you've got to own the rails but you've got to sign up all the customers so it involves a lot of marketing as well and just a lot a lot of um, you know walking the pavement to sign everyone up so that's that's it's, it's expensive and so you've got to do all the marketing as well 
And then I think about, you know, myself, I'm 47 years old. Uh, I pay off my credit card every month just with a direct debit, like I don't even have to look at it. But what I do get value out of is the uh, the points system and, and I get a whole heap of free flights each year and it's worth it. So it's worth paying the 350 bucks, I think, annual fee. So you've got this whole ecosystem that comes off the cards that no one else can compete with in, in addition to not actually having to build a network. Because if you're actually going to go and build the network, like that's going to cost an absolute fortune, um, like an enormous amount of money that no one's going to bother spending because then you've actually got to go and out-market, out-compete and create the whole international ecosystem and industry from scratch. And it's just like it's just a monumental task. And that's why you've got companies like Apple Pay who essentially just ride the rails and they just rather get a little clip of the ticket rather than spend you know a zillion dollars try, trying to compete it's it's just too expensive mm. when you think about mastercard it's as you said at the top it's one of the just those big stable sort of earners that is just improving its profit year on year um where where do you or what, what do you factor in over the next five years or so from a growth driver point of view is this just a story of trying to get more and more market share from its competitors how do you see like uh revenue growth over the next sort of five years and um, there's a couple of things here so and we can actually bring portfolio management into it right, which is a really important part of um, looking at these stocks because they, they look like the perfect stocks right you say look this this stock is so good and it's priced reasonably it's like it's in the mid to low 30s as a PE price to earnings ratio at the moment in a couple of years assuming the growth that everybody expects comes through it'll be in the low 20s um, you know so you'll own this absolutely world's best business in the low 20s if you're patient for a couple of years and like that's a really nice outcome you know with for a business that should be able to grow in the teens for you know indefinitely basically um but you've got these big risks um you know around regulation which you you can't get rid of them but the question is you know would you would you run with 50 percent of your portfolio in a company like this um well maybe if you've owned it since 2006 you know you might and just hang on to it and let your profits run but from if from a professional funds management perspective, and there are a lot of funds that actually have a lot, you know, 10% plus of their portfolio in Visa and MasterCard because they've just been so good and they just keep trimming them as they go along. But the reason they trim them is because you just never know when one of these big risks could come up. And if you've got 50% of your portfolio and all of a sudden they're worth half, um, you know, that's a hard thing to explain to your investors. So uh, I think what you can do with these businesses, no matter how good a business is, you've got to have some sort of limits on your portfolio management, um, you know, maybe we end up going with, um, you know, 5% in MasterCard and 5% in Visa um, because you just can't get rid of those risks. So, uh, Nathan, we've spoken a, a little bit about MasterCard. You, you've touched on management, uh, you've touched on growth and the competitive threats. I, I guess the, the question to sort of wrap it all up and, you know, to really understand why you know, MasterCard has been a great investment since 2006. It's made a lot of people a lot of money, but that's all that's all old news for investors, you know, for yourself looking at MasterCard today and thinking about putting it in your portfolio. So what, what does the company look like in five or 10 years if management can execute? Is it radically different to what it looks like today or what vision underpins the thesis? Sorry, come back to your previous question as well. The the difference between Visa and MasterCard is that um, it's sort of roughly these numbers, but roughly two thirds of Visa's business is in the US and the other third from around the world. And MasterCard is the opposite. 
So MasterCard um, typically trades at a bit of a, um, it's only a small premium to Visa, but it's because the market thinks that there'll be more growth overseas than there will be in the US. Um, and you can argue about that, but you know, I'd say that would, that should be true. So, so the thing about this company is like we, we don't actually want it to change. Um, you know, if there was some sort of massive technological hiccup coming our way that maybe required a massive investment or was going to threaten those gigantic profit margins in MasterCard, you know, then that's something really to worry about. And, and again, you might just factor that into your portfolio management and just make it a smaller position, um, you know, rather than carrying five or six, maybe it's a three or 4% position if you thought those risks were higher than what we do. Um, but it's really just more of the same, you know, this is, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here in, in any way. This is, when I talk about MasterCard, I feel like I'm like all those fund managers talking to you about CSL. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, I'm sick of it. You know, everyone says it's a bit like the old days where if you bought IBM, you know, you never lost your job. Well, well, for people listening who are, who think that Nathan's just talking about a stock that we've all heard of before, I can assure you the next one that we're about to speak about, most people won't have heard about to the point where Bryce and I were figuring out the correct pronunciation uh, before we started recording. That's because we were given to us with a spelling mistake. Yeah, well, <laughs> that kind of ruins the mystery. But that's a good lead up. Uh, as we said at the top, the fund IISV is made up of international and local equities that uh, Nathan and uh, Intelligent Investor Team believe are trading at undervalued prices. The fund is still at an expression of interest stage, so it's important that you register your interest so that you can get the priority access when the initial offer opens. The link for that is in the show notes. Now we're going to just take a quick break and on the other side, we're going to dig into a second uh, stock that is part of this portfolio. So uh, we'll be right back after this short break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now today, Ren and I are joined by Nathan Bell of Intelligent Investor, digging into the idea and concept behind the Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund, ticker IISV, an actively managed ETF of about 20 or so global industry champions and market leaders. Now, Nathan, before we jump into the second stock, can you just touch on the international coverage of the fund and why you've launched it? Like We see fund after fund come to market and really like to understand how it's different to some of the other international funds that are out there. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the things that really frustrates me is I see all these fund managers, um, and it's becoming increasingly so, where they've got a stable of funds and the best fund by far in terms of outperformance, and maybe it's usually, often it's actually their only outperforming fund, is the fund that can actually invest overseas and own some Australian stocks as well. But I think it's becoming more, more common as well because I think people are starting to open up a bit more to 
overseas stocks generally. So, so there's a combination of trends there. So with the our performance on our existing trio of funds on average, I think is about three and a half percent per year. And there's some pretty heavy restrictions on those funds. I mean, one's an income fund for a start. Um, and I think that's, by f- I can't find an income fund that gets anywhere near to the outperformance of our funds over the same time. Like it streaks ahead, and, you know, and it's not based on a BS benchmark, like including franking credits in your returns and not putting the franking credits in the index, all that sort of nonsense you see everywhere. Um, you know, and one's an ethical fund. So again, huge restrictions on the sort of stocks it's going to own. And yet we've had that great outperformance. So, so the reason I really wanted to create this fund is because by able being able to buy these wonderful businesses overseas, plus combine them with some of our best small cap ideas in Australia, um, you know, that just creates the best possible opportunity to outperform of, of all our funds. Uh, and as I, I keep repeating, but I just think people are finally starting to appreciate, you know, because they use Google every day and because they see Apple and they're just seeing how good these businesses are and because they use them every day, I think it's just become... Uh, a, a lot, they're just a lot more open to it, you know, along with the frustration probably of the poor returns of some of their long-held Australian stocks. But one of the things that's been holding us, or the thing that's been holding me back, is it's one thing for me to run the fund, but we have a subscription service, which uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have heard of or tried before at some point, and to introduce 20 new international stocks and cover them on an ongoing basis every day is a huge task and I just don't have time for that. So I've just been restrained in in that way. And so we hired an analyst, uh, Nick Cummins, who is uh, 100% responsible for this next stock we're going to talk about. So if you don't like it, blame him. <laughs> and uh, and he's, he's able to write up all these um, stocks and keep people abreast of them. So if you're the sort of person that has no interest in the fund, you want to do it yourself, but you've just been waiting for someone to hold your hand and cover these great businesses, um, then Nick's going to do that for you and um, I think April 7 will kick off the subscription service. And we should just clarify, Nick Cummins, not the honey badger. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> He's a redhead though. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into this this second stock because uh, as we were saying, Bryce was pronouncing it floor and deco and I was pronouncing it floor and decor. <laughs> A company that we hadn't heard about before, also listed in the US, uh, New York Stock Exchange ticker FND. So Nathan, to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Florin Decor? I can. So i get the names right here. So the company was founded in 2000 by a guy called George West. And George actually had a family business. And I don't know if it was just one single uh, building supply store, but his, his parents had it. And the story goes that he... Uh, was very frustrated um, when he was doing his own bathroom renovation. And he said, there's just got to be, you know, better options than what there is. And so he, he got into specialty flooring. And today we've got 170 stores across 36 states. So so it hasn't been around very long. Like this isn't the MasterCard story where you're going back 60 or 70 years. This is a fairly new business. And, and it does specialise in flooring and building supplies. So the, the building supplies heritage is obviously there from his parents' shop, um, but it's really about, about the flooring. And the difference in this business compared to what exists out there is it's a specialty store and typically the industry has had companies like your Home Depots and Lowe's, which are uh, the Bunnings equivalent in the US, you know, tremendous stories in their own right, to tremendous um, shareholder value creators. And, and they don't specialise in flooring. And the other shops that tend to specialise have just been much smaller. Um, you know, Floor and Decor stores are, tw- are 20 times larger generally than any 
um, competing offer. So when you've got, you know, I think it's about 2,600, if I've got it right, 2,300 um, hard flooring stock options in these stores, like to say it's comprehensive probably doesn't do it justice. Um, but, you know, here we are, like you think, um, you know, you're in America, which is a, an enormous country, and you've only got 170 stores rollout. So it just shows you how early stage this business still is. And the CEO now, who's a guy called Tom Taylor, who actually has a history as a very senior executive at Home Depot. Uh, he started out as a 16-year-old and and worked his way up there. And he didn't get, didn't get quite to the top, but, you know, very senior roles for a very long time. Um, looks like he spent six years, I think it's like a venture capital type business and obviously got sick of listening to pitches uh, or maybe it had something to do with the GFC and maybe there wasn't many pitches to review anymore. And uh, he wanted to get back into a managerial job. So he took the CEO role at Floor and Decor. And his current aim is to get that 170 store network um, up to 500 stores by 2030. So um, big aims for the company. Um, but this isn't a mature company like MasterCard. Has a similar price to earnings ratio, but obviously a very different business and a very different set of financials. Yeah, well, I wanted to touch on that. So, for a company like Floor and Decor that is a lot earlier, less established, I guess, than the Mastercard, as you just pointed out. How do you look at the financials differently? You spoke it about Mastercard. You're just looking at that revenue growth and also profit growth now, just how much they can put to the bottom line. Is that as important for a company like Floor and Decor, or what specifically are are you looking at to I guess, keep proving that your thesis is right here. The, the secret to looking at the financials is to understand that um, you know, only 30% of the stores so far are more than five years old. All right, So, so the, the network's actually even sort of younger or more in its infancy than it looks. And the reason that five-year um, target is important is because that's what they consider a mature store. And a mature store is twice as profitable as a new store, you know, as you'd expect, because it just takes time for a, a new store to ramp up. So, you know, you can sit there and you can just, um, you know, you can build a simple spreadsheet. You can have some sort of estimate of what you think a, a mature, profitable store earns. And then you can just quite simply, you know, do the rollout. You know, let's say they hit their 500 stores over the next seven years, um, you know, work out what the maturity of each store is over those years. And, you know, you'll come up with a, um, a discounted cash flow giant spreadsheet and it'll probably say that the share price is going to be worth three or four times what it is today that's exactly why we're in this but i just don't think you need to be that specific at this point and, and i'm always um you know, i'm not a big fan of spreadsheets because i i think this all they really do is create more mistakes more more potential mistakes and in my experience what they've done is actually made you sell the great businesses far too early and uh, because the great businesses they just surprise you you know um just use an example like arb was this you know four-wheel drive accessory you know, company that you know, um, you know, before COVID, you know, earnings per share was stuck at 70 cents and all of a sudden they sign a couple of, you know, and those EPS have really gone nowhere for ages. Then all of a sudden it comes out, announces a couple of new um, contracts and all of a sudden earnings per share has doubled. Um, so, you know, you can't put that sort of stuff in a spreadsheet. So so I sit there and look at Floor and Decor and say, okay, well, this thing's trading at low 30 times. And if it, if those stores, the existing store network matures, um, then you're going to own a store at under 20 times earnings just from the existing network pretty soon. So basically, you you know, if you're happy owning that, if you think these are sustainable stores, continue to be you know profitable for a long time to come, and you're starting on a at an earnings yield of say five percent, which is you know the equivalent of a price to earnings ratio of 20. So it's just the earnings yield is just the flip side of the PE ratio. 
um, you know, you've got a nice growing business there that should at least grow by three or four percent a year for a long time. So there's your eight or nine percent return based on your existing network, and essentially any bonus you get from the other, you know, three hundred and fifty stores that are coming is all is all gravy. So Nathan, when I look at a company like this, uh, you know, how how big is the market for hard surface flooring? Is instantly where my mind goes, and how sexy <laughs> can a business like this be? And the analogy that comes to mind if I'm thinking of an Australian company would be something like Nick Scarly. You know, how big can the market for furniture be? There's other competitors for furniture, but you look at Nick Scarly and it's a it's a story of founder-led execution in a pretty unsexy category. And I guess the floor and decor story, if it plays out, will be something similar that, you know, this becomes a, a giant in hard surface flooring. But I guess you do have to just wonder like what's, What's the natural limit for a market like this? You know, they're targeting 500 stores. They've seen great revenue growth so far. How big is the market? And, you know, even with the best execution, can this market support 500 large format stores in the US? Yeah. So, I mean, there's 330 odd million people in America. And at the moment, this company has got less than, is only in, you know, 36 states. Um, there's 170 stores. So really at the moment, that's only... Not that this is where the stores are, uh, but that's only three stores per state. Um, so the bottom line is it can handle a lot more. You know, I, I don't know whether 600, 700 is the limit, but, um, you know, and maybe they don't get to 500 as quick as what they are because that, that actually requires a lot of investment and that's a far more rapid rollout than what they've had in the past. So that's probably where my interest is more at the moment is on how much money it's going to cost. You know, are we going into a global recession? So does that slow down the rollout? You know, they're going to have to focus on profits just to make sure they've got the capital um, to be able to roll out those stores over the longer term. So I'm less worried about maxing out the market at the moment because we're, we're only paying you know low 30 times. I know that sounds high for most businesses, but when you're talking about tripling the stores, um, you know, low 30 times is nothing. And that's why, you know, the market's prepared to pay a big multiple for La Visa, for example, at the moment, you know, people can see it's growing. All of a sudden, the new CEOs come out and say, we're just going to open up stores everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, the market's buying it. Everyone's excited. So uh, it's the same thing. But there's one other aspect to this investment case that I think is really important and probably not well understood for by most Australian investors for obvious reasons. And, and that is that America actually has the its current population of sort of 25 to low 40-year-olds, like essentially the millennial population, even though I'm told millennials don't like being called that, but whatever you want to call that population cohort is the largest population cohort in American history. They are your key home buying and building years, family starting years. And so you've got that huge demographic tailwind for this business. The average age of a, a home in America is 39 years old. So there's plenty of renovation to be done. And, and this is a really important point is that the mortgage market works very differently in America to what it does in Australia. So basically when you take out a loan, it's fixed for life, but only for that property. So, so at the moment, everyone's interest rates are going up, but not mortgages in America. Like everyone's still on the 3%. And that's why like the transmission of these higher interest rates in America is so slow. At least they don't have variable rates like they do in Australia. So you've got all these people who for the next 10 or 15 years are going to be stuck in their house whether they want to move or not. They're only having to pay a 3% mortgage rate. And if they move, they're going to have to pay six plus, you know, it's going up. So maybe it'll be seven or six and a half or seven very shortly. So obviously they're going to stay in their home and they'd much rather spend the money and renovate their home. So 
Um, Florence is becoming a, you know, an increasingly fashionable thing. I think in the past it was just more of a, you know, just do whatever we need, you know, hard white tiles if they're my parents' place or, you know, easy to clean, you know, whatever it is. But these days the flooring is actually becoming the absolute highlight of the house. You know, you're seeing all the Chevron flooring and all that, which is much higher margin um, revenue for this business. So um, so that's what I like about it. It's not just a store rollout. I just really like the tailwinds blowing behind the industry generally. Now, Nathan, uh, one final question around, I guess, the moat that Floor and Decor has and the competitive threats because I've just Googled Home Depot flooring and uh, they do have a flooring section and it says the Home Depot really is your one-stop shop for all your flooring needs. Now, for people who are unfamiliar, Home Depot is or Home Depot is the Bunnings of the US. It's a giant in this sort of, you know, home renovation, outdoor space. How do you think about the threat from... Home Depot and how does Floor and Decor continue to, I guess, differentiate and beat them? So, so these guys have always been there, right? These like Lowe's and Home Depot go back a long way. And the thing is, there wouldn't be any floor and decor if these guys were already providing the the full range. the The fact is, when you go to Bunnings, they're not specialists in flooring. You know, it's it's a broad. You know, it's, you go in, it's your one stop shop for everything. But that also limits, uh, you know, what you can provide your SKUs, as they say, the the variety of products you can buy. And so, you know, I don't know whether they have two thousand three hundred products, but um, you know, that's essentially where Floor and Decor is. You know, they are the specialist. And if you read there's some um, books on, um, you know, business theory that basically say over time, biz, uh, industries tend to fragment into specialists. And so this is a good example of that. So if, if you're, you know, you don't really care about your flooring, if you just want half a dozen choices and you just want to pick the economical one, or maybe there's one flash one, one expensive one, then you go to Home Depot. But if you want to choose from 500 different ones and you really want to make flooring the, the, main, the main thing of your home, then you're going to go to Floor and Decor just because it's, it's the specialist. And that's the opportunity. And, and the other thing I'd say too is Tom Taylor is ex-Home Depot. Uh, he wasn't the CEO, but he was basically the next best thing. And he was he was there for, I think it was 25 years or something. So he knows who he's competing against. And so when he took the job at Floor and Decor, um, he knew exactly what he was up against and he knows everything they do. And he clearly figured that he could take them on. So um, he's been doing a good job so far and um, we're backing him in. Nice. So Nathan, to close out, when thinking about Floor and Decor, what are some of the risks or perhaps, you know, what what is going to blow the thesis apart? Is it just simply a matter of that they're not rolling out as they said they would or are there other key sort of elements to it? Yeah, I mean, the, the first one I always ask myself is just competition. You know, is, is someone else going to come and start up and start building the same specialised huge stores? And, you know, that's the number one thing you're looking for. Um, the, the second thing is just a, a problem with the rollout. You know, if you start to see that the stores – weren't as profitable as, as the store network matures you know that would that would be a big red flag because that's telling you that america doesn't need 500 floor and decor stores you know 170 is probably enough so um you know and the thing is if those stores aren't maturing and those profits from those stores aren't growing then that's less money you've got to reinvest in that store rollout so all of a sudden you know if you've got you built your you know your dcf spreadsheet and you've got 500 stores in by 2030 all of a sudden, even if it's just delayed by three years, for example, um, then, you know, your discounted cash flow statement is going to be very sensitive to that change. Uh, in the short term, I'd say it's probably just more around a recession. Uh, you know, people m- may not want to go and spend 
thirty thousand dollars on the you know reflooring their their house if people start losing their jobs. But to me, that would only be you know that's just a temporary cyclical factor, and that's um, you know any opportunity to buy this stock on the cheap from from that opportunity would be fantastic. You know, I'd be cheering for that. Uh, it's more about always about competitive advantages. Is anyone going to come and steal um, you know the profits and and reduce the profit margins? especially when you're paying 30 times earnings for a business like you know I, I don't say that lightly you know it's very rare that we pay that sort of multiple for a business but these are just two i think pretty spectacular opportunities that where it's worth it now nathan that does bring us to the end but we have uh, one more question for you and every year uh, equity mates hold the equity mates awards where we celebrate products platforms and people that are making financial markets more accessible to us as the retail investor and as an expert uh, one of the first for the year, although we did have Andrew Brown, but uh, you are now in the running for the highly coveted trophy of expert of the year just <laughs> by appearing on the show. And uh, it's voted by the community. But we want to know if you are lucky enough to win, where will you be putting the beautiful glass trophy that we send out at the end <laughs> of the year? <laughs> Sounds like my downfall is imminent. Um, how about I put it in the background there for you so at least you can see it. Nice. Perfect. I was hoping for that answer. <laughs> As we finish up, just a reminder that the fund IISV is a compilation of international and local equities of quality businesses at undervalued prices. Intelligent Investor just launched their fund, so if you are interested in checking it out, use the link in the show notes to find out more information. Nathan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Great to chat with you again in 2023 and to get us thinking about two international stocks. My pleasure, guys. Thanks again. Thank you very much. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 54067. 